Welcome to A Word from the Valley, a weekly podcast produced for you from Zion Lutheran Church in Middletown, Maryland. For more information about our faith community and our weekly worship services, visit us at zionmiddletown.org or find us on Facebook. We hope you have a great week, and God bless. When we talk about scripture in church today, we we are typically referring to the entire corpus, both the Old and New Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and the Christian kingdom. The Christian, the New Testament. But it wasn't always that way. It took about 300 some years for the church to decide what is scripture and what is not. And around 369, 380, somewhere in there, the first council of Constantinople and our first council of Nicaea and Constantinople, that's where they decided which books of the Bible were scripture. And they came up with a list of 80 canonical books. In the 1500s, the Bible went through another, at least the canon went through another edit, as Martin Luther and the other reformers decided what they should keep and what they should not keep in the biblical canon. As they're Protestants, we typically have 66 canonical books in our Bible. But before councils and religious leaders decided what our biblical canon would look like, Scripture meant something completely different to those early Christians for the first 300 years of the church. Scripture was the words of the Hebrew Bible and nothing else. When St. Paul quotes Scriptures in his letters, he does not quote the Gospels or any of his other letters because, one thing, the Gospels weren't penned, and two, he didn't consider his letters to be Scriptural. Rather, when he quotes scripture, he quotes from the Hebrew Bible. Christians, for many centuries, before the Gospels were ever penned, turned to the Hebrew Bible to find inspiration in God's direction as to why God sent them Jesus. Many of these early Christians turned to a translation called the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Now, legend has it with the Septuagint that 77 rabbis came together to translate the Hebrew Bible from Hebrew into Greek. They take their notes. They all go back to their separate countries, houses, and villages. And a couple months later, they all come back. And somehow, miraculously, the legend has it is that they all had the same exact translation. Now, as someone who has studied Greek, I can tell you that's nearly impossible. It, it's almost it's impossible to think. It's a good story to tell people, and that's why what we do, but it probably didn't happen. But what did happen, and this is the most important part of the whole story, is that people could read, Gentiles could read the scriptures. Gentiles who were coming into the church never knew any of the stories from the Hebrew Bible because they couldn't read it. They're now able to read it with their own eyes. Because of the Septuagint, Gentiles could read about how God created the heavens and the earth. How Jacob wrestled with God. He could read about the faithfulness of Abraham and Sarah. How Moses led the people from slavery into freedom. About the kings and how God-awful they were as leaders for Israel. And how they got 
Israel, kicked out of Jerusalem, thrown into exile, but how God was faithful to them throughout that exilic period and brought them back to to the promised land many years later. And just like us modern readers of fiction and and nonfiction, those reading the Septuagint would have remembered the most, the very beginning of the book of the Septuagint, and the very end. The beginning is the same as ours. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. But the last page, the ending of the, the Septuagint, is from Malachi chapter 4. Malachi writes, Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents and children and the hearts of children to their parents, so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. That's the very end of the Septuagint, of the, of the Hebrew Bible in Greek. Now, Q Mark's gospel. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark might be a very short gospel, but it's incredibly deep. We go from the final words of Malachi to have God promising to send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So the gospel Mark writing about a description of a guy who sounds a lot like Elijah. 2 Kings, chapter 1, verse 8. A hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. That is Elijah the Tishbite. And how does Mark describe John the Baptist says, John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. You go from talking about Elijah coming before the day of the Lord to Elijah showing up. Mark is making a very powerful theological claim. God has kept his promise and has sent John in the form of Elijah. Or sorry, has sent Elijah in the form of John, ahead of the Lord. John the Baptist is preparing the way, making the path straight for the Lord, just as God promised to the prophet Malachi that Elijah would do so. John is calling his followers to repent, to turn around, to be redirected, to radically reorient themselves to God through a baptism of repentance. For the Lord is coming. And when the Lord shows up, he's, he's going to baptize not with water, but with fire, the fire of the Holy Spirit. This is all really good stuff, and I could keep going on and on, but it's the story behind the text it's, that is even more intriguing. It's, it's tucked away behind these beautiful words of Mark. It's a powerful message that we don't know about because we're simply so far removed from the first, second, and third century world that Mark is writing into. It's a message of hope in a world where all hope has been taken away. In the gospel point for last week, Mark 13, we heard Mark's vision of the final days. He quotes from Isaiah that says, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. We typically associate that with the future, right? This future event that will happen. But what if Mark is describing both the future and something that already happened? What if Mark is describing the events of the temple, the holy dwelling place of God on earth, Jerusalem? being destroyed by the Romans in the year 70. What is very interesting is that after this conquest, Rome produced a message, as it most always did after a major conquest, propaganda material. They, they start out this message by saying, we have some good news, some evangelism, 
to share with you. The same phrase used by Mark to start off his Gospels, the Romans for years have been using to tell of their conquests and destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Mark stole it from them. Mark stole their word. Mark took their good news and he reframed it. He took their words of hate, their, their words of death and lies and deception and says, no more. That's not good news. But this is. This is the real good news. This is the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. The beginning of the good news. The evangelism of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And how does God share this good news with the people? He does so by keeping his promises. By not letting the people down. By assuring them that only good, the only good news worth hearing comes from our Lord, who keeps his promises and takes down tyrants. Mark is connecting the past to the present. Mark wants us to have the words of Malachi in our heads as we read those opening lines. Mark wants us to remember the promise of the prophet that has said, See the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be like stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so it will leave them neither root nor branch. And what does John promise to do? He says, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me, and I'm not even worthy enough to stoop down and untie the throng of his sandal. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See the argument that, that Mark is trying to make here? Jesus is the answer to Malachi's prophecy. Jesus will take down all the evildoers, leaving nothing for them to grow from, neither root nor branch. That is how powerful Jesus is. And this is why John can't untie his sandals. Jesus is about to bring a big wake-up call to the wicked who have abused their power and influence to gain even more power and put a stop to them. First century listeners hearing this gospel, hearing this message of evangelu, of good news, might have some questions. Is Jesus going to be like Rome and conquer us like Rome conquered us? Which always leaves losers and very few winners. And most of the time, Mark and his community were the losers in that, put in a bad predicament. Malachi goes on to say, but, but for you who revive, revere my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I at, says the Lord of hosts. John prepared the way for Jesus by speaking truth to a world that was not willing to listen to the truth. Those whom the wicked have scorned, God will redeem and scatter the wicked ashes to the ground. That is a hard truth to hear. But it's a necessary truth in a world that Mark's community was living. But the reality for first century Christians is not the same reality that we live into today. So maybe the best approach we can take from this text is asking, what truth do you need to hear this day? What truth do you need to tell? And the answer to those questions might differ for each of us. But I think the truth, a good truth, though, that we all need to hear this Advent season is that Christ our Lord is coming. Not at Christmas time. He already came. 
And he's not going to come in the form of a baby again, as we, as we first knew. He's going to come in the flesh. And aren't we ready for that? Does that make us scared? Or have we given up on waiting? These are all relevant and normal feelings to have. But I hope it drives us to examine, more importantly, to whom have we told this evangelu, this good news to? Have we given the people, heaven or hell? Have you shared the good news? How have you shared the good news? The only good news. The only news that matters. You know, our official name here at, at Zion is Evangelical Lutheran Church. Zion, Evangelical Evangelism. How have we lived up to our name of sharing the gospel? You know, we might not live through the times that Mark and his community lived through, of the temple being destroyed, of Jerusalem being destroyed, about, of a ruthless government determined to do us harm because of our faith. But there are so many people in our world and in our community who need to hear some good news today. Because all they know is really bad news. Let us be the good news in someone's life this day. Let us be the light in the darkness. Let us be the leaders of hope in this town and community this day by living up to our name and bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to the people of Middletown, to the people of Maryland, 